Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho, co-hosts Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with soprano Elena Villalon, who placed first in the Metropolitan Opera National Council Audition Central Region last weekend. She tells us how it all went down. And then, in hometown team, last Friday, Chicago Opera Theater announced that General Director Doug Clayton was stepping down from his leadership position with the company. We throw around some ideas on what's behind the move. Plus, we crunch the numbers. Recent stats from the British Phonographic Institute reveal a rise in streams of classical music that is outpacing the rest of the sector. We ask what the industry needs to do next to further its digital future. But wait, there's more. In the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. And, of course, you can call us on air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Ask a question. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687. If you're shy, you can email, tweet, post on our Facebook page. Oliver, is there any way people can't? get in touch with us. So I think that I should not watch football because the last two times I watched NFL football, that's what you call it, right? NFL. Um, <laughs> I jinxed the teams that I wanted to win. Like I literally started watching the Bears playoff game. I was at Whole Foods, like getting my sherry vinegar and my nice pickles. Like an NFL fan does. Exactly. And I was like, everybody's watching the TV. What's happening over there? And it was this really adorable kicking guy. I don't know what you call him, but he was like, kicking <laughs> the, the ball. Usually a kicker. <laughs> yeah, kicking he was guy. A kicking we'll guy. And he was kicking the ball, and it looked like it was about to go in, but then they said it was like timeout. It's like, what? What is that? Why? So then he had to kick it again the second time he missed it. And I was like, it's my fault. Did and the, you watch last night? Yes, of course I did. I was actually at Pequod's, uh, home of Chicago deep dish pizza. Did you watch the Chiefs game yesterday? Me? Yeah, yesterday, Kansas City, right? That's what they're That's called? That's my team. Yeah. I'm not really crazy about their name, but um, I did watch the almost the entire game, and um, yeah, I was like really, it was really exciting, the fourth quarter. It was incredible. Yeah, and I thought, oh, they won. For sure they won, and then... They didn't. They didn't. They yeah. took my heart, they raised it up, and then they dropped it and fell on it, and it was tragic. But that, you know what? That was the pinnacle of my sports fandom was last mm. night. Was yeah. that's the closest my team has ever gotten to win a championship. Yeah. You and know, I, I for one, I'm glad that the underdog finally got some recognition. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not gonna lie though. That Rob Gronkowski guy. Yeah. Like, I want to slap him across the face, but I also want him he to do some things to him. With one hand. But you I also would want love him it. to slap you. I would love it. Too. Yes. <laughs> Wipe that smile off his face. I have to say one more thing. Uh, this, there's this guy named Tsitsipas. He's like this Greek tennis player. He's like 20 or something like that. He beat Roger Federer, and it was heartbreaking. And now I have to cheer for Tsitsipas. I don't think I can. Tsitsipas. Yeah, plus his name sounds like City Pass. City Pass? He yeah, can get City into Pass. all oh, the easy. Tsitsipas. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Elena Villalon is a soprano based in Ohio. She was last weekend's winner of the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions. And she joins us now by phone from Cincinnati, the Queen of the West. Elena, <laughs> are you on our show? Can you hear us? 
I am. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I, the Queen of the West, of course, is not Cincinnati. You are not yet the Queen of the West, but based on your <laughs> performance uh, over the weekend. Well, she became the Queen of Lincoln Park this weekend. So, <laughs> um, so Elena, hello. This is the first time we're actually talking to each other. Um, I was in the audience at the Met Central at DePaul University's sexy new Hoffmannsteier something center. I don't know what it's called, but it's a brand new music school building with a glamorous uh, recital hall. Jane Eaglin was one of the judges on the panel, which was very exciting in and of itself. Uh, We also had um, Lenore Rosenberg, who is like the tastemaker for all the young artists everywhere, and a guy named Robert Ainsley. I probably should know who he is, but he was there. And you were one of 11 singers who competed in the Central uh, Finals, competing from, I think, four different districts. And you were one of like eight sopranos. <laughs> it was like eight sopranos, two mezzos, and two tenors, something like that. Maybe seven sopranos. It was a lot of sopranos. And as it turns out, you were the youngest uh, in the competition. And I suspect that if you make it to the finals, you'll be the youngest there too. So, hello, Elena. Welcome to Upper Box Score. <laughs> <laughs> now that Oliver's given the entire biography of your yeah. life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, it was it was such a whirlwind experience um yesterday was only yesterday that it happened and um really i had such a great time and kind of didn't expect to move on um just really did this whole competition for feedback um so it's it's really has been wonderful well i would love to talk about that feedback but before we do i want the audience to know that you started with a very ballsy selection uh you sang uh, on poil à la tristesse from Le Contori, which mm-hmm. is more of like a bel canto shena than it is an aria. Uh, it has a recit. It has like that chorus accompagnato bit, and then it goes into uh, a cabaletta. And it's sort of a long thing, and uh, it's hard to pull off with piano without like the extra tenor lines and the chorus lines. And so you have to do a lot of chop shop to make it work within the confines of a competition. And I... You know, I was really excited to hear it because I'm a big Rossini fan, but I was also very surprised that you chose that of all Rossini things because uh, it's, you know, it's sort of a beast, that thing. It's got crazy color to options to put in high notes in many places. Uh, it sort of builds to this really, you know, breathless climax. And it's a very, it's a hard piece to pull off. And I'm just really curious as to, did you choose that piece? Did your teacher think you could do it? Uh, I mean, really, I'm just blown away by the the gutsiness of you having put that on your five. Well, I I chose the piece. Um, I really enjoy it. I mean, it's it's it is a Shana, and, and the character Contessa Dell really has so many different emotions and feelings. And in the beginning, she's acting, and then she's she's you know putting on you know different face for for the audience that she has so it's really fun um and and i enjoy it because it's almost like you get you get to have every rossini sort of style within that six or seven minutes you know you have the the beautiful sort of cavatinas and then you have the crazy coloraturas and you have the the arrested in the beginning so um i i have a lot of fun with it and then, as is off, almost always often the case, uh, if you do something super flashy, uh, the next piece that they ask for is Mozart, just to see, <laughs> just to see if yeah. you can like rein it back in and you know sing clean and sing legato and have an even you know tone quality uh, up and down the register. So they asked you to sing Dieveni non tardar, uh, which. You know, I feel like is a, a piece that many more people would expect you to sing at your age. And of course, you did it beautifully and you are you're a great already characterization for Susanna. So I'm I'm happy that they advanced you. Uh, you had some very stiff competition uh, singers who were almost 10 years older than you uh, showing a lot of artistry, a lot of tone, a lot of volume, a lot of drama. But they went instead with the wunderkind. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm well, cu- I I know I will be some of the singers uh, I go to school with currently, and I knew some of them from the district, or I guess yeah, the district Indiana that we all competed in, which I think had the most 
singers in the competition. Um, there were four of us. And everybody that sang was just so, so beautiful. And I always wish that I'm earlier in the lineup so that I could hear everyone sing. But uh, luckily, the venue uh, had a monitor system backstage, so we could all listen in the comfort of our sweatpants. <laughs> it's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking with soprano Elena Vialon who was a winner of the Met Opera National Council auditions last weekend. Hey, Lena, this is Toby. So as a fellow singer, I'm curious. You said you went into the competition to get feedback, not really expecting to win. So congratulations on that. I think that's awesome. But I am curious. Can you tell us a little bit about the feedback that you did get after winning the competition? And then what, if any, type of adjustments you're going to make um, before moving on to the next rounds? Well, I, I mean, all the judges gave really helpful and constructive feedback um, I got a lot of helpful comments on what to expect going forward in the competition, mm-hmm. what to expect like in the semifinals and singing in a house of that size. You know, the Met is really large, of which I don't really have that much experience. Um, some of them gave repertoire suggestions, not necessarily for the competition, um, but just to work on and and, and um, really most uh, Jane Eaglin gave the most singing um, feedback, and a lot of it was how to sound more authentic and Italian, uh, which is always helpful uh, because I'm not a native speaker or from there, and um, so it's it was it was helpful for sure. Um, and I wanted to ask, did they say anything about your Rossini? Do they want you to keep using that aria, or do they suggest something else for you? Yeah, I mean, actually, that was had that aria had been on my list. All year, pretty much, but uh, nobody had asked for it, I think, probably because of the length. Um, It's a couple minutes over what people like to hear, typically, (laughs) but um, this time, I, you know, I I like it so much, and I like singing it, that I was like, I just, I'll start with it, and they loved it. They said that I should start with it always, no matter where I go, so, um, which had not been my starter aria previously, but... And did they give you a chance to work on it with your accompanist, with the staff accompanist, the Met accompanist? Yes, yes. We had that uh, previous morning, or the morning of, so yesterday morning, we had um, we had time, like about 15 minutes, to work with our accompanist on the stage, which was nice, so we could feel out that it was a very live uh, auditorium recital hall, but it was it's definitely always nice to sing in a space that you're going, or practice in that space that you're going to sing in. Well, I just want to say that, like, first of all, congratulations once again. Uh, this is the Thank first you. time we've interviewed somebody this early in the process. We've had other Met Council winners on the show after they won the finals, but never at the uh, dist- at the regional level. What he's trying to say is now you're our favorite, and we're betting on you. <laughs> But almost in a way, like you're representing the Midwest, uh, good Midwestern values. We eat, <laughs> we eat beef here, you know. We we like our men straight. We like... <laughs> I don't know. Why Thanks, Oliver. Elena, I do have a question. Um, yeah. You're, it, it says on the program you're from Austin, Texas. How did you get into opera if you're from Austin, Texas? I know there's <laughs> opera down there, but I say this: I grew up in rural Kansas, and it suddenly it found me too. So I'm curious, what's your story there? What's your background? Do you mind sharing a little bit, a little bit of that with yeah. us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it found me. There was no way I could go looking for it in Austin, Texas. Um, and my my parents aren't, you know, my family is a musical. Um, in any capacity. So I didn't really grow up with music and had a, my friend in elementary school, her mom was the concert master of the local symphony orchestra and told my mom that I had perfect pitch after hearing us one day, which I don't have perfect pitch, but my mom had no idea what that is. So she just signed me up for (laughs) choir and I did choir for a long time and was always kind of told that I had an operatic voice and, I think, like, one summer when I was, like, 13 or 14 and hadn't been hadn't been doing anything that summer. I wasn't working yet, but I wasn't going to any sort of camp. Uh, I was literally so bored that I watched an opera on YouTube and <laughs> you were, you were um, fell in love, really, and I've been doing it ever since. 
And you always wore ball gowns everywhere you went, and so it just seemed like a, a natural. You were always <laughs> much po- like all opera. You were always poisoning people and stuff like that. Yes, only have ball gowns. <laughs> um, okay, so we actually have to wrap up, but we will be cheering for you in the in the finals. We hope you make it to the finals. We know you'll make it to the finals, and we would love to check back in with you uh, later on in the process, perhaps. Uh, after the semis, when you make it into the finals. <laughs> toy, toy, toy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations, and uh, yeah, good luck. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. How about we root for the home team? Baseball season's underway. It's Upper Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist in tonight along with Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. It's what we call a full house. The gang's all here. Go, Cubs, go. <laughs> get, get closer to your mic, bro, so we can really hear that voice. I, I still can't listen to that song without thinking of my freshman roommate who had it at his, as his alarm clock. I think my mic died. <laughs> and he would keep it all the way on the other side of the room. <laughs> and take a really long time to turn it off. It, it haunts. Morning. It haunts your dreams. Oh, I can't. I just can't hear it. I can't do it. What, what, <laughs> what time do you get up, by the way, Cummings? I mean, now I'm a working adult, George. Yeah. We're talking about Wait, freshman year of college. I know Matt's schedule, and Matt gets ready in the morning in less than 15 minutes. It's wildly It's 15 impressive. minutes on the dot. <laughs> <laughs> Last week, Chicago Opera Theater's board of directors announced the promotion of. Ashley Magnus to the role of general director, previously the company's general manager of strategy and development. Magnus will join music director Lydia Yankovskaya at the helm, making COT one of the few multi-million dollar opera companies led by women at both the board and executive level. Magnus succeeds previous general director Douglas R. Clayton. Clayton stated, quote, having accomplished many goals since I joined Chicago Opera Theater in 2015, I've decided to step down to pursue other opportunities. I'm excited to leave the company in Ashley's and Lydia's capable hands, and I look forward to applauding the continued success and accomplishments of COT in the future. I'm going to be honest. This was surprising news for me Mm. to come out on uh, Friday morning, I think, wasn't it? Last Friday? Uh, I believe so, yeah. That's where they like to dump news so that people are not suspecting it. I know, yeah, (laughs) which was sort of a a strange choice. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around why Doug Clayton, you know, colleague, friend of the show, big supporter of us, has such a great thing going at COT and why he would decide to to step away. And we're going to get into some conjecture here over the next segment or so. It's all it's all thoughts. Um but also the the question is why immediately? Why does this press release say that Ashley will assume those responsibilities now? And why didn't we get a press release earlier saying we're planning this, you know, at the end of Scarlet Ibis, which is our next show or, you know, before before we begin production of the next show we would like to make a, whatever. It's just like it just happened, you know. A- am I am I right? that Doug had been working closely with Ashley over months or possibly even years to kind of get her ready for this position. So so Doug has really turned around COT in a very short space of time, right? I mean, I think we can we can all agree that under Andreas Medesek, the company didn't have a, a super clear vision, and the vision that it did have was really that of one individual who was a designer, a conductor, a director, an administrator. And that this company, like, really has a vision now. And it is really bringing something unique, not just to Chicago, but really to opera in America. Yes, there certainly is um, a, a lot of... Uh, uh it is much more like we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the best of 2018. One of the highlights of the entire uh, the entire year was sort of the trajectory Chicago Opera Theater has uh, been on uh, in terms of uh, taking on more and more ambitious productions, churning out uh, big crowd pleasers, selling out their house, um, uh, going into doing some pretty ambitious stuff like Moby Dick coming up later this season and and things like that. Uh, so it, it it was I do think uh, the, the uh, now, full disclosure here, I, I do, 
work with Chicago Opera Theater in some sort of capacity. I don't know anything about details or particulars. I think uh, Magnus is going to make a she's 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 ma she's great. She's going to make a magnificent leader. I. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's anything. I don't want to like have us be like implying that there's something strange going on where there might not be. No, you're not. You're not uh, implying but, that. Uh, but certainly I think it is, uh, uh, it is pretty demonstrably true that, um, the, uh, that uh, Douglas Clayton, uh, he, he, he really has been uh, sort of the sort of public face of the organization in a very dramatic way. I mean, uh, last year he won, uh, what was it? Uh, he was in the... He was on the, 40 under 40. yeah. He was under the forty under forty list in Chicago, um, and uh, you know, so it, it did sort of come as a surprise, I think, to a lot of people that this happened. Uh, now that being said, I think uh, uh, Ashley's going to make uh, she's going to be fantastic. I think it's a, a really encouraging sign, not just for COT but for all companies to have sort of this example of a, a really uh, a woman directed company. Um, in every aspect, uh, which I think is a really dramatic change and one that I think that COT is really should be proud to be on the forefront of in this country. Well, we're going to step aside for one second for a couple of announcements. We're going to be right back more with the conversation about the next steps for COT from all of our team. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. How about we root for the home team? Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Talking about the announcement over the weekend, Friday, it came out that there's a change in the general manager position at Chicago Opera Theater. Doug Clayton stepping down and being replaced by Ashley Magnus. So uh, Doug Clayton himself says that he has been, you know, grooming Ashley for this position. So it isn't a surprise to him. <laughs> yeah, and that's been happening. It, it does seem like there's a like that it's a continuation in the direction that COT would was moving because Doug Doug Clayton really in in the Cranes 40 under 40 profile they really highlight the way that he has been revitalizing the institution of Chicago Opera Theater mm -hmm. you know helping to build institutional memory helping to build uh, that kind of an infrastructure to really make the make the shows happen to keep the qual and that kind of stuff is really necessary to keep the quality consistent and so to have someone continuing to take the 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 Reigns, who not only ha has worked in arts organizations for quite a few years, but also has a strong business background and is yeah. a proven fundraiser, is is a pretty good strategic well, choice. They've also I would put say. an emphasis on diversity and inclusion, and I wonder if he, being at the top of the food chain, said like, "Well, we're trying to be diverse and inclusive, and here I am, this white guy." You know, I do think that's something that's uh, you do see in a lot of opera companies, yeah. well, not just opera companies, in, in a lot of organizations, you you'll you'll see. Uh, you'll see all sorts of companies that scream about how diverse they are and how inclusive they are, and they're still run by an old white man, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think this... Uh, putting 40. The, <laughs> That's old, Oliver. Yeah, I'm old. Heard ancient. Us. ancient. Um, but I do think that uh, pure, like if, uh, I, I think purely, I think he has achieved um, the goals as he set out to uh, achieve them, and I think um, maybe he just thought that this was the, the time to... Uh, to really put the money where the mouth was as far as <laughs> diversity and leadership goes. This just in, uh, Elena Villalone has been announced as the new uh, artistic director of the Metropolitan <laughs> Opera. <Wow. laughs> 
That was fast. That was really fast. Congratulations again. You know, if if I had to come up with a, a metaphor for this, it, it it's like Doug Clayton came in and he kind of flipped cot like it was a <laughs> just like it's one of the the, maybe, the shows on like HGTV. A, like i was gonna say I, I think maybe this is a pitch for his oh, his, his upcoming but I mean, yeah, that's, yeah that's not entirely <laughs> uncommon. <House> <laughs> it's not entirely uncommon in the yeah. business world i think it's just interesting because uh oftentimes that intent you know when ceos or whatever that intent is announced and board members are aware of it and i wonder how long the organization cot has known that this was going to happen because press release says it was planned Doug himself says it was planned, but then we all find out about it on a Friday morning. And then, then literally the next day, website was updated and everything had changed. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely different when you don't have to answer to shareholders and, and stock prices and things like that with it just being a, a not-for-profit company. He's going to need a sassy gay for his show. <laughs> uh, Are you auditioning? <laughs> no, I think it should be like Anthony Roth Costanzo, you know, or oh, Adam Bitbon or something like that, you know. yeah. 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 I'm trying to think of other opera companies that need to be flipped with yeah. with the with, uh, oh Doug Clayton Enterprises. I need to make a, you a big old list. Big San old Diego list. Part Two. <laughs> Remember that? Oh, dude, yes, yeah, that was a mess. That was a total mess. All right, well, we'll keep our eye on that story. We'll see what comes of the Magnus the Magnificent. You heard it here first. What's next? Crunching the numbers. Subject to interpretation and analysis, let's crunch the numbers. Thanks, Norm. It's Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams' full house tonight. According to the British Phonographic Institute. Every time I see that, I want to say Pornographic Institute. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Me too. That is what it looks like. That's what my brain says. The I British Pornographic Institute would be. <laughs> this might actually be the the British. That's Pornographic a very Institute. very different podcast from what we're running here. That's George. that's true. Well, I'm going to Google it. Don't don't <laughs> no. don't do that on this Wi-Fi. Whatever you oh, do. You're right. Uh, in 2018, <laughs> it, it announced that streams of classical music rose by 42 percent. That's compared with a 33% rise for the whole UK music market. And streaming now accounts for a quarter of classical music consumption. That's up from 19.5% in 2017. Even CD sales are up. And these numbers are sort of bizarre that in in 2018, (laughs) it's all increasing. It's increasing by overall uh, consumption. CD sales are up. Weston Williams, our resident LP egghead. <laughs> What's I, your hot take? Well, uh, first of all, I don't own any LPs because I'm, I'm streaming like a, one of the cool kids. Uh, but that is sort of, you know, sort of, I think, uh, one of the conversations um, that everyone's having about music in general is how uh, streaming services are sort of changing the industry and how it all works, right? So seeing that classical music is getting this better than average bump, granted, this is in the UK, and granted, this is including the sort of uh, crossover-y sort of genre, which is questionable as to how... And which are the bestsellers, the Andrea <laughs> yeah, Bocelli's oh, and the, the film soundtracks and the Sarah Chart Brightman's of the world sure. are, are, but, are number one on their charts. They, they have that in the data. But, uh, but it, even uh, underneath all that, there is at least some, there appears to be some sort of surge happening with classical music. Now that's um, pornographic. <laughs> uh, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Well, my mind went somewhere else completely for that one, but... Uh, uh, to get us back on track, um, the uh, the interesting thing about this is is that, as far as I'm concerned, I think classical music in many ways is sort of uh, not suited to modern streaming, and there are a couple of reasons for that. And I think the the main the main issue is sort of the track lengths because. Uh, classical music, of course, uh, began being composed far before any sort of recordings were taken into consideration. There wasn't any need to limit the length of a piece because, you know, there was no such thing as a recording, so you didn't have to confine it to an LP or a CD or an MP3 uh, length. So, as a result, you have some tricky things going on. Like, for example, uh, musicians are paid by track uh, when, uh, when, well, not just musicians, everyone who is involved gets paid by the track, not by the amount of music on it or by how many people played it. And so in classical music, you see these much longer tracks um, getting the same amount of pay that you would uh, a, a three-minute pop track compared to, a, say, a seven-and-a-half-minute 
classical music uh, uh, sort of thing. Okay, so more work has gone into a 20-minute track than a three-minute track, but the pay rate is the same exactly. well, also, in terms it, of the rights. It's also just not consistent from album to album. Sometimes right. you'll buy an opera recording and the whole 45-minute act is one track. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it'll be cut, cut up into 10-minute chunks. Sometimes it'll be cut up into minute-and-a-half chunks. It really depends yeah, on how the... Yeah, look at a Mozart opera with all its recits, right. uh, and even within a recit, there's a, a scene change. So you can have... 30-second tracks, 20-second tracks, and so a Marriage of Figaro recording can ultimately have like over 100 tracks. Well, that, that would know. be a good thing then for people who are streaming classical music because the more tracks, it's more money for rights. At least in theory, but there are other issues that you have to kind of, kind of consider as well. Um, uh, another one, uh, one that kind of I have is that a lot of people use, um, say, for instance, Spotify or streaming services that they're not fully paying for, so they still get ads. Uh, and if you're listening to something that's through Composed and you, you know you're, you're listening to your your Parsifal, you're having a grand old time. Very relatable emotion uh, for me. Uh, Who and, hasn't? And, and then all of a sudden, you know, an ad comes in, which it, it renders the full streaming of an opera basically uh, intolerable, at least to people like me. Um, and it also sort of uh, artificially constrains, I think, the popularity. Uh, and, and the listenability if you're not already paying for that full service, which eliminates those ads or at least gets them down enough so that you can kind of get through enough of what you want to listen to. I, I would add that these streaming sites and even like the iTunes store when you're looking to buy something, right. it's really, really hard to find what you're looking for, even if you know exactly what you're looking for because there's no consistency in terms of how things are labeled. Sometimes it's by composer. Sometimes it's by the lead singer. Sometimes it's by conductor. Sometimes it's just like totally random symbols that they seem to right. conjure out of thin air. And if you're looking for a particular recording of something, you might have to do a ton of research to find out exactly which one you're finding or like which reissue of it, which remastering of it. They just get, you know, if you search Maria Callas on Spotify, you're going to find like oodles and oodles of just garbage re <laughs> repressings of the original discs that that make it hard to actually find the ones that you want. Yeah, and it, it I think uh... I mean, this is the sort of thing that you have uh, every single time in, in recording history. There's been some sort of change. You go from uh, uh, 78s to 33s to uh, cassette tapes to uh, CDs, you know, you know, Betamax to VCR to use a vis visual medium. There's always going to be some sort of uh, fundamental changes that happen to the industry. But I'm not sure how much thought is being given to how for how classical music to best respond to this. Um, and while I think that the uh, I, I think sort of the conventional wisdom is that well the people who are listening to classical music tend not to be streaming it very much anyway. But the data here would seem to counter indicate that, which could it, mean that there could be some uh, some things we have to sort of work out in order to better adapt future recordings into this new medium so, that we haven't been considering. So the article doesn't actually mention this, but if you click on the link to the data that's embedded within the article, it does mention that 60% of classical music consumption still does come from physical CD sales, right? which is a large amount. Yeah. So we're, ta we're talking about for the 40% of it that is left is growing by a faster amount than the pop music, which is an interesting t statistic. I'm not trying to take anything away from that, but the way that this data is clustered, I think, is not sorted very well to the point where it's almost meaningless. If you're talking <laughs> about classical and classical crossover data at the same time, that's just not accurate. They're mm. not the same thing. They don't have the same I'm sure. not and I'm not even going to I'm not going to discount classical crossover music because I think it has its place. Uh, but it but it is a commercial venture in a way that that classical music isn't necessarily. And so when you're talking about them at the same time, that's not really fair. Man, Matt Cummings putting that MBA to work. Look at you <laughs> go, dude. And, uh, and furthermore, <laughs> if we're talking about the growth, I, I looked for because I was curious if they are if if they have it segmented at all by the people who are listening to it, because it says something very different to me. If you're saying that like a bunch of 20 to 30 year olds, more and more of them are listening to classical music sure. versus more and more 65 and older people are just joining Spotify. And they're listening to the music that they were already listening to. And why are they joining Spotify? Because of Be Alexa. Because for Christmas, their son and daughter got them uh, <laughs> like a Google Home. And now they could just walk into the house and say, uh, play Mozart, you know. Play Andrea Bocelli. <laughs> Bocelli. Yeah. But this, uh, I mean, all, all this data, you know, I think, you know, I, I think it's pretty questionable as to what con solid conclusions can be drawn. But I do think there's a larger discussion to be had here about how classical music should adapt 
uh, to uh, these new kinds of listening. Um, uh, and there are going to be some certain difficulties that are going to be hard to you know, overcome. For me, one of the reasons I don't stream, aside from the ad ads thing is the uh, the sound quality in streaming services tends to be a little bit lower than uh, CD or even downloaded media, um, particularly on certain sites uh, like Amazon. If yeah. you ever tried their streaming service, it's, it is absolute garbage. Do not buy Amazon. I, 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 I oh, it's so bad. There goes that. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. I, I'm going to slash our paychecks in half this week. Um, but there, but uh, there is something to be said for um, really sort of sitting down, looking at the data. I would love someone to be more comprehensive about who's streaming uh, classical music, why, and how are they streaming, how many tracks are, are they, they streaming? streaming, exactly, so that we can sort of use those things to our advantage. Because I think there are also some really great opportunities here uh, that we've sort of been falling uh, off the ball with in terms of opera. Like, for example, um, I think it'd be really neat to have sort of streamed digital librettos to go along, uh, lots of multimedia ideas that you could, you could stream uh, uh, where you can get video in there and all sorts of things that could attract more people to the art form. Uh, which, you know, have kind of fallen by the wayside. I mean, there was that whole period kind of like in the early aughts where, like, we're never going to send you an, uh, a libretto in our CDs ever again because we'll just have them for you online, which has never worked. And actually an interesting thing that the data also pointed out is that a lot of the rise in CD sales, they they find has been driven by these re-releases of collector box sets. Yeah. Uh, something which a lot of times are are made to kind of recreate the the ceremony of getting an LP. Like a lot of times right. they'll, they'll be the CD individual CDs will be in little envelopes that recreate the original album art yeah. and stuff like that. That's re that's really like they're making money on the nostalgia of it as mu as much as the novel, even if not more than the novelty. And just to dovetail on an earlier thought you had, it's maybe why CD sales are still uh, rising in the classical sector is that um, like you, demonstrated uh, we care about song, sound quality. People listen to classical music actually don't like the sound of compression and we're talking about instruments you know that benefit from having you know really rich reproduction. Right. Yeah. Uh, whereas in popular music and in the hip and the hop as they like to call it <laughs> you know they I'm, know sure. I want you to say that phrase over <laughs> and over again for the next rest of the show. They know how to use uh, you know, this digital compressed sound as actually part of their soundscape. Right. It's their language, you know. True. So. And there is, you know, new classical music that is sort of taking these sorts of things into account, but they tend to be, you know, smaller offshoots of what we might call mainstream classical music. Yeah, I hate music. to say it, Weston, but I don't think that's what's driving the rise. <laughs> well, right, yeah, I don't think that's it. Prob <laughs> yeah, probably less so. But, um, but you know, these, these are things that not just, uh, not just for, you know, the, the streaming companies to consider and for consumers to consider. This is something that we have to consider as, you know, artists as well, as people creating music, that people are not going to be listening to this on CDs and LPs. We're going to be listening to it on a different way in different modes going on into the future. But and especially if you're talking about the artist, we have to be careful that it doesn't just turn into a yet another rehashing of this debate about whether or not you can live on the exposure from having people listen to you and oh, not God, actually yes. being compensated for that. Food for thought, crunching the numbers. All right, another opera competition is on the rise. That's next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news and the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, Intendantin Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. The Metropolitan Opera is offering federal employees affected by the ongoing government shutdown two free tickets for any performance through January 31st. By Voice Alone is a competition which will use blind auditions in the hope of discovering new stars based entirely on their vocal talents. Opera hopefuls will perform from behind a screen to a panel of judges. No age limit. People with disabilities are welcome and prior experience is not taken into account. That's in the UK. For anyone who uses their voice in a professional capacity, vocal fatigue is a real thing. Northwestern University's Beanin School of Music lecturer Teresa Brancaccio often helped her voice major students understand the strain they put on their voices by asking them to track their talking and water intake. That was on paper. Now she's made an app called Singer Savvy. Wexford Festival Opera has named Rosetta Kuki as its next artistic director, succeeding David Agler after this year's festival. Police in Gütersloh, Germany, said last Monday that the costumes coming from Spain for an upcoming production of Puccini's Tosca were stolen from a truck after the driver pulled into a rest stop for a break. About 100 costumes are gone. Over to the disabled list. Christina Opolius has pulled out of her Boston performance of Dvorak's Shabbat Mater. Quote, I've decided to withdraw from the performances following Swore Angelica at the Met. Music of Dvorak is, of course, very close to my heart, but as I continue my journey through different repertoire, my voice is changing, and this work is no longer a perfect fit for me vocally. She'll be replaced by Rachel Willis Sorensen. And on this day, January 21st in 1904, Janicek's opera Yenifa had its first performance in Brno. 1920, Franz Schrecker's opera Der Schatzgräber premiered in Frankfurt. That was for you, Weston. And in 1995, Stuart Wallace's opera Harvey Milk about the openly gay mayor of San Francisco premiered in Houston. That one is for Oliver. And on this date, we celebrate the birthdays of Placido Domingo and Suzanne Menser and the anniversary of the birth of Manuel Garcia, the or bel canto tenor who fathered Maria Malebran and Pauline Viardot and literally laid the groundwork for how singers are taught to this day. That is your two-minute drill. That was Suzanne Metzner uh, from a live performance of Tales of Hoffman from La Scala in 1995, singing Niklaus's aria. We also call that the, the violin aria. And I have to say that uh, back in my waiting tables days, um, there was a time when Suzanne Metzner came into my restaurant and sat down, and I was just like fangirling so hard. And she was so flattered that somebody actually recognized her. And I think that we forget like, we like have all our opera idols, but most of the time they go around walking through this world not being recognized. <laughs> I saw her teach a master class, and I saw her perform in Così Fan Tutte, and she's one of the most phenomenal people I've just ever witnessed walking yeah, around. Yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Just, um, a, just a great technique, you know, dark tone quality top to bottom, you know, fun on stage. I remember one time she was at Lyric Opera Chicago, and she, like, broke her ankle, and she sang Rosina, like, on crutches, like, walking through the Whoa. stage. So, yeah, it was awesome. Okay, That's so wait, intense. I just want to jump in. I have two personal connections to this two-minute drill today. Um, Manuel Garcia is in my vocal family tree. He's my great-great-grandfather. Is he really? It's like, yeah. So The father or the son? No, like Manuel Garcia, the father, like the father of singing. I can't remember exactly how it works, but he taught a woman who then taught a man who then taught... um, my voice teacher's voice teacher who then taught me. 
Oh, I thought you were saying you're actually related to Manuel Garcia. Like, <laughs> you Do I, look... My name is Tobias Wright. I am not related to Manuel Garcia. <laughs> You know, what are you talking about, bro? The musical. At Ellis Island, people's names got changed. You know, um, so. The other thing is that Teresa Brancaccio at Northwestern, the it's essentially the the Fitbit for voice. You know, what's really cool is because when I was in grad school some years ago, um, she had started to implement the voice tracking for fatigue, and it was a paper thing, and she had us do it for her um, pedagogy class. Yeah, and I, did, was, I did that too. And it was really actually fascinating. And to this day, I've always kept track of my vocal fatigue and and been hyper aware of the stresses that we put on our voice that like the voice is such a tiny resilient instrument but it, the smallest things affect and change what is available to us physically um day to day and so i think it's phenomenal well it's kind of a brilliant idea oh my just gosh, on yeah. paper and i look for singer savvy it's apparently not on android they're but, still working on it yeah but um it's on um uh, OS, yeah. Have you have you used it, Matt? Or have I you... will. I did the paper version too yeah. when I when I was in school, and it's a really fascinating project. Wow, boys, you beta tested it. Yeah. Huh? We, <laughs> we just actually forget how much we talk during the day, and oh, so sure. you just sometimes just need to shut up. You know, just like just shut up and just like go through the day and try not to talk. Well, maybe know. that's what Toby learned is that he should just <laughs> shut up more. Well, that's one of the things Haven't... that she talks about too is that you you get different amount of points for if you're talking in a, like a relaxed setting or like a loud setting. That yeah. that costs more and you don't think about that as much when you're mm-hmm. not an, a singer. Well, and yeah. I became he was at the time <laughs> I was coaching basketball for Special Olympics and she had to like talk to me because I would come in the day after coaching and for my voice lessons and she's like, all right, this isn't working. Like this is, you can clearly tell a difference because you were up late. You were yelling in a gymnasium. She's like, you're not fresh when you come in in the morning. And I was like, uh, are you sure she wasn't talking about your deodorant? Yes. Oliver. <laughs> I've never had to have a teacher have a, about my cleanliness. It's opera box score in WNUR 89.3 FM America's talk radio show about opera. A couple weeks ago, we talked about this singing competition in China to find like the next big opera singer by voice alone is not that it is. <laughs> it is finding new stars, but the, the process is entirely different. This this idea of of blind casting, right? So performers are behind a screen, just looking at the the first round. Judges are not able to look at contestants' resumes. They're not even given their names. It's literally just like number three, and then you listen to number three. I'm kind of fascinated by it. George, you shouldn't be. That's how all auditions should be done. Mm. Well, it's tricky, right? Because I feel like, you know, musically, it makes absolutely perfect sense to me. Um, uh, I mean, this is, you know, how most uh, orchestras do it now. Uh, every Looking at you, Vienna, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every formal, you know, uh, every formal music audition I've ever done has been like that, which is not that many. Um, but uh, Come on, you're a great accordion player. <laughs> you know what? I, I actually want to get George's take on this. Like, yeah. What, what do you think? Because you're the only stage director in the room here. Yeah, well, I... I mean, I'm I, a stage director, too, but I'm... You, no, don't sell yourself <laughs> short. I mean, I think it's great. I think it is the way it should be. Here's what Weston was going to go on to say. I I'm guessing bull. I is that, bull on that, by the is way, that so. opera is not just a, a aural medium, but it's a visual medium as well. Yeah, and nailed at some it, George. Po- and at some point, you've got to see the people. And why do you have to see them? It's not what they look like. You got to see them because you got to be able to see if they can act and if they can communicate with the audience, because that's the whole reason that we go to the theater is to have some sort of communion with the performer. I think that's why in the details for this competition, it says the first round or maybe the first couple rounds are this pure, like you're just listening and that's going to kind of separate things out. And then eventually, yeah, at some point the screen's going to go away. So the question is how, how do you then tackle that step of the process and how do you train the people sitting on my side of the table, sitting on the auditor's side of the table, not to judge certain qualities, race, shape, size, but to judge on this question of can they bring truth to the role. So for me, this is a competition, and this is just done for entertainment. 
It, there's not a real application in the real world here, but what mm. we could do towards that goal of like purity is to have no resumes and no uh, age limits on things. Uh, I think a lot of opera companies and directors uh, make decisions based on people's previous experience, and they're not really paying attention in auditions. I couldn't agree with you more. I don't, yeah. underst I don't understand the age qualification thing at all. I think that's complete BS. Is that a common thing? Uh, to oh my, it, it's it, almost a universal thing huh? Yeah. At, at the top level yeah. for young artist programs. In, in oh, for young artist programs. It's a form of sure. discrimination. Is what it is. It's and called ageism, yeah. and it's a form of discrimination. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's really tricky because and classism, it, by the way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's where the resume comes yeah. in, Oliver, yeah. because classism is inherent in the resume. You know, depending on what school you did or did not go to, because what program you got into. You know, exactly yeah. because why? Because you could afford it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's one of those really difficult things that uh, as. As you know, artists, uh, as singers, there's not really much you can do about it. This is something the 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 responsibility is purely on on the person at the other side of the table, um, and those who teach them about their own biases and and things like that. And this is, it's, cause I mean, it there there are definitely I. I I think that there's there's some sort of kernel uh, of an example, uh, 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 of an example sort of. Okay, what I'm trying to say is <laughs> my my words are getting away from me. But I think that there's some uh, the idea here. I think is sound. I can't think of a good way to implement this kind of thing on a wider scale. Um, but at the same time, I do think that these are some of the most pressing issues that need to be addressed. Unfortunately, it's all completely in the hands of the people who have those biases, who, who do cast based on resume and reputation. Um, and I, I don't know if there's a way we can solve that by adjusting the audition format. Look, um, like 94% of all good things in opera, change is going to start at the grassroots micro-opera level. Hmm. That's where this sort of thing is going to, if it's going to take off, that's where it's going to happen. Tobias, your silence means you're frustrated. Why are you frustrated by this story? Uh, I'm, no, my silence is because my microphone broke and I was letting <laughs> letting West. You're having a cigarette over there. No, in the I was letting West use room? it. No, to me, I it, this isn't. It's not groundbreaking. It, this is how it should be done. There is so much like talking about classism and 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 uh, having age be another discriminatory factor. I think this is how all editions should always have been done. And what I mentioned in our notes uh, in our pre-production notes is that. When I was in high school and auditioning for regional and state level competitions, I auditioned for a panel that was behind a curtain. And if the state of Kansas and all their ass backwardsness <laughs> can have this right over a decade ago, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't know. It, this is how it should be done. And I, I so like you said, George, it's going to happen at the lower levels first, and then that's just how opera works. And then it will infiltrate its way up. It has to be beta tested in these other com companies. But um, Oliver's telling me to quit talking. No, he's not. No, he's he's hyping you, man. <laughs> it's like it's what are called you, yeah. props. I no. do. I, well, I mean, just to sort of build off of that, just a little bit before Oliver. I'm just gonna stomp right on over Oliver because he always stomps on me, so it's fine. Uh, 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 I, I I do think that there's that. Of course, it's going to go go up. But the problem is, is that that just sort of delays the the problem. Well, the you, other thing too is that if we know the fact that it's being promoted as a as a show, right? We have our dirty laundry. We don't have to air it and then promote it as if we're doing something great and heroic. Let's fix the issue behind the scenes and address yeah, it that okay, way. Yeah. Okay. So right? they're, they're, they think it's a gimmick and they're and they're monetizing it, yes. Oliver. So do you sure. think that the Met is putting a target on its back by having this uh, initiative to have furloughed workers <laughs> no, have free dude, tickets? Everybody's doing this now. I know, but I mean, the Met. This is very public, you know. I'm yeah. Like, I mean, I appreciate it, but really, are the people who are affected by the. Uh, the stop, the work stoppage. What's it called? The shutdown. Yeah. Are they ones that are, are longing to go to the opera? Like, oh, now's my chance. Like, you know. Well, I think there's actually probably plenty. Can't you feed know? my family, but definitely can take them to the opera. Now. Escapism. 
Well, you know, maybe there's so many different levels of government employees who are who are being affected. I mean, I, uh, they're doing something <laughs> nice within their means. No, I I know? get it. I I think it's I think it's actually great. I'm not poo pooing it, but the people who would normally go to the opera and who might be furloughed probably are the same people who have you know a contingency plan in their own finances and might go to the opera. You know, but the people who are actually <laughs> suffering. From this, do you think that's going to cause them to go to the opera? You know? Yeah. Well, hey, look, the seats are empty. We know that. They much. got some free time. So, so I just th- these guys. I assume they're guys that stole the um, Tosca. <laughs> my question is, I admit it. It was. I love this story, Matt. I wanted all of the costumes for myself. <laughs> <laughs> my, it's like, what are you going to do with a bunch of costumes? I mean, there's uh, there's not much resale value on those. I, I couldn't. You'd be surprised. I, I don't often steal costumes, <laughs> but uh, I, I would assume that you know. I mean, they're all going to be you know tailored pretty specifically. They're all going to be pretty fake. They're not. You're not going to be able to pass them off as a historic thing unless it's a real old I'm production. I'm wearing one right now. I'm just imagining <laughs> like uh, one of those heist movies, like Baby Driver or something dun, like that, dun, where dun, they were actually. We don't talk about Kevin Spacey. Dun, dun, all they right. were <laughs> they were supposed to be you know stealing something else, but they accidentally stole. <laughs> <laughs> A truck full of costumes. What do you think they were stealing? What do you think they thought they were stealing? Las drogas, man. Drogas, baby. Yeah. Instead, it was the costumes from a rental production from the Lithuanian <laughs> National Opera. Try to sell them on the black market to drag queens or something like that. Although I, 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 I kind of wonder what the backup plan is now. That they're missing those costumes. Just going to go out in t-shirts. It's going to be a, oh, it's going to be an updated production whether they want it to or not. And they're going to love it in Germany. <laughs> Let's wrap the show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us, everybody out there for Opera Box Score. Thank you, boys, for hanging out, too. We got everyone, I think, has a good call or a bad call this week, so we I better don't. I have a bad call, actually. No, I, I changed ahead. my Let's mind. Let's get your Go. Make America Great Again the... negativity out of the way. So. <laughs> I, my bad call is this cold weather with the with the air blowing and just layers of ice, and I, I, I don't know how to deal with it. All right. <laughs> my, I have a good call. I saw Bohem at the Lyric. It's wrapping up uh, this week. Uh, Lyric Opera Chicago. I have to say, it was a very enjoyable production. I thought Zachary Nelson as Marcello stole the show, and it's not often that Marcello steals the show, but he was phenomenal. And Zachary Nelson actually filled in for Daniel Denise in a series that we have in Chicago called Beyond the Aria. Daniel Denise was supposed to sing, and she canceled, and we got Zachary Nelson instead. So, good for him. Uh, I have a good call, and then we'll go to Matt. (laughs) Um, this is a little bit hyper-local, but uh, there's an opera company called Opera of DuPage, which sounds like it's a college opera. It's not. It's actually a very professional-level opera. <laughs> and they are presenting Deflator Mouse, everybody's favorite Strauss operetta. And Catherine Weber, uh, who was amazing in the COT production Yolanta. of Yolanta, is singing Rosalinda. Uh, Michaela, oh, I should know her name. Uh, Michaela uh, Schneider is singing Adele. And Jesse Donner who uh, was in the Ryan Opera Center, and he was like their promising up-and-coming like future held in tenor. I didn't know what happened to him, but he's back, and he's singing Eisenstein. <laughs> and this so. time it's personal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's no Countess Maritza, but I guess we'll have to <laughs> settle for Flatermouse. No, coming up soon I- at, at Lyric Opera Chicago is Electra with Nina Stemma, and I will see it if it's the last thing. Oh, I yeah. Do. Yes. Great. Do you want to be my date? Yeah. Okay, well, oh, we'll, make it, we'll make it happen. I got a good call and a bad call. We can make it three. Good call. Um, you've got to watch the clips of Super Vocal, which is that Chinese competition. The links are on our website, operaboxscore.com. I guarantee you, you've never seen anything like it. Here's the bad call. Oliver, speaking of people canceling at Lyric, Chance the Rapper was supposed to be in conversation mm-hmm. with Renee. Renee Fleming, and and he backed out. He, uh, because he, you know, made a record with R. Kelly and then like the horror mute R. Kelly thing blew up and then Chance was like, I'm not doing any sort of public stuff. I'm, I'm cutting back on everything. So he really, I don't know. I, I just feel like. But he like bought a school or something like that, right? He gave a million dollars to CPS, which is obviously a, a brilliant gesture of goodwill. And then he completely bobbled the ball on, on working with R. Kelly and how he decided to distance himself and then all that. All right. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is 
John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. For co-hosts Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera even if your team isn't going to the Super Bowl. We're back on Monday, January 28th at 9 p.m. Central when we're joined live in studio by conductor Alex Enyart. We'll be talking to her about a new project at Thompson Street Opera called Faulty Systems. Plus, you're going to get all your opera headlines and our hot takes. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment.